Well, as we go to the Lord in prayer this morning, I'd like to read from Psalm 86 these words. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And I will give thanks to you, O my Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Father, we thank you that it is you upon whom we trust and in whom we trust and believe this day. It is you who grants the strength we need to live each day and to proclaim your name through our lives and through our words. Father, we trust you to be present here this morning as you have promised, to take your word and to make it a tool to work in our hearts to draw us into a better understanding of your character and of your will. Father, I thank you for your love and grace, for the opportunity that we have to yet freely meet together in your name. And I pray that as your word is proclaimed this morning, not only here, but around the world, that many will be drawn to you and into the kingdom of God. We're grateful to be a part of that kingdom. And we thank you for your promises and your love and grace. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the 14th chapter of the book of Judges, I was reading a little article in um, Discipleship Journal, and the person was saying that a teacher, this, this woman is a teacher, I think, in Minnesota, and when she, in her classroom situation, makes reference to Samson or Daniel, she said that she finds that almost all the American kids look at her totally blank, and it's the people from out of the country who are foreigners living in America who answer the question, particularly the Asians. They know who Daniel and they know who Samson is, but the Americans <laughs> they have never even heard of Daniel and Samson. And of course, what this is indicating is there's, a, I think, a shift of the center of the work that the Lord is doing. And I think China is probably going to be the great, great center of the 21st century of uh, the work of the Lord, or one of them anyway. But we need to pray that God will keep the fires burning here. We've been looking at the life of Samson. Samson is a uh, man who God has raised up to be Shofat in Israel, but his character has a few flaws in it, as we have noticed so far already. He comes on the scene uh, living in this part of the country. This is the Sorek Valley right through here, Sorek Valley, and this is where we're at. And the tribal area of Dan is down in this area here. Actually, it's supposed to go clear over to the coast, but the Philistines have truncated the western half of the uh, region. And so Samson, living at uh, right up oh, about over in here, in the city of Zorah, has come down the valley over here to a little town by the name of Timnah. Now, the Mound of Timnah is very, very prominent still in Israel today. It's right out, sitting out in the middle of some guy's field, and it still rises up and, and is quite obvious there. It's, of course, a ruin. There's no town at that point today. But Samson came down to Timnah for reasons that the Scripture does not explain. But while he was there, he became enamored of a Philistine woman. And you remember that he went back and told his folks, I want to marry this Philistine woman. They tried to talk him out of it. He wouldn't hear of it. And so they went down to make the proper arrangements, and he waited outside the town while the arrangements were being made. He went into the vineyard to do what he was not supposed to do, and that is touch the vine because he was a Nazarite. And there a lion jumped on him, and he slew the lion with great strength. 
and he told no one about the killing of the lion. So several months later, when uh, they came back to Timna to do the actual wedding, uh, he stopped by to see how the lion was doing and found that, uh, that bees had made a honeycomb in the body of the lion. And so he had taken some of the honeycomb and given it to his parents, but still didn't tell them about the lion, what he had done, or where he'd gotten the honey. And so where we left off last week in the 14th chapter, the wedding is going on, the, the seven-day feast is taking place, and at the beginning of the feast he offered a riddle to the invited uh, guests of the groom, the 30 male Philistines who were there. And you remember the riddle, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. And for three days, half the period of time, the Philistines were scratching their head trying to figure out the answer to this riddle because he had made a wager. The wager was that if, if they found out the riddle, he'd give each of the 30 men a complete change of festal clothing with fine linen. And if they failed, then they, each of them would have to give him a full outfit of clothing. So they were very concerned, and uh, he was unconcerned because he knew they wouldn't be able to solve the riddle. But you remember what happened at that point. So let's read, beginning at the 15th verse of the 14th chapter. Then it came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband, that he may tell us the riddle, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? And Samson's wife wept before him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told it to my father or mother. So should I tell you? However, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted. And it came about on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so hard. Then she told the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his friend. Just before the deadline, at the last minute, oh, by the way, we figured out your riddle. They gave him the answer to the riddle. And he instantly knew where they had gotten the answer, because they had been puzzling all week long and not come up with even a close answer. His reference to his wife as a heifer is a statement of ridicule of her. The meaning of Samson's accusation that they had plowed with his heifer was thoroughly understood by those men. They knew exactly what he was implying and accusing them of, but it didn't change the fact that they had discovered the answer to his riddle. He had, of course, placed no restrictions. <clears throat> he had not said, you can't ask my wife or you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. It was just a wide open riddle. Can you solve this particular riddle? And so he understood that it was his fault for yielding to his wife, listening to her cajoling, and giving her the answer. So he decided, I will stand true to my wa uh, wager. I will pay off the debt. 
but he did not feel he had really lost the wager, at least not fairly. And so he knew in his own mind that, you know, he'd been betrayed. His wife has betrayed him. So what does he decide to do? He decides, well, I'm going to pay the debt, but I am not going to bankrupt myself or my family to pay off this wager. Now, we're not talking about small ticket items here. Remember back in verse 15, which we read towards the end of the verse, when the, the men are trying to get Samson's wife to get the information out of him, they're threatening to burn her, and then they say, have you invited us to impoverish us? So we're, you know, it's, it's like I said before, this is not a t-shirt and a pair of jeans that they're to supply to, uh, that he's to supply to them. It's festal clothing. It's Sunday go to meet and clothing, fine little linen underwear, you know, undergarment type things. So we're talking about expensive clothing here that he is uh, required to supply. Because if 30 men felt like they would be impoverished, each giving only one set to Samson. Think of Samson when he has to provide 30 sets to these individuals. And of course, Samson was a poor farmer. And the land in which he lived was under the hegemony of the uh, Philistines. And so they had no money, no cash to go out and buy clothing uh, just to pay off a wager. Now, we have to understand behind all of this is God. I think it's very important that we remember this principle. God is using this to accomplish his will, although he is not willing Samson to do all the silly and stupid things that he did. But he uses what Samson does to accomplish his purpose. He has called Samson to be a shofat. Samson does not really understand the meaning of that at this point in time. But he is going to be used to begin the deliverance of Israel. And again, it's important to remember, this is the beginning of the deliverance. The deliverance will go on under Samuel, it will go on under Saul, and it will not be completed until the time of David. The Spirit of God rushed on Samson. And this is one of the terms you find applies to the Shofat or the Shofatim all through this book. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him for the accomplishment of a particular purpose. And so God led him down to Ashkelon. So he's up here at Timnah, which is right about in there, and now he's going to go down the coast to Ashkelon. Ashkelon is not the southernmost of the Philistine cities, cities Gaza was, but it was uh, quite a ways away. Well, it was about 25 or 30 miles away. But you'll notice that closer to where he was was Ekron and Gath. Actually, Gath is, the location of Gath is debated. It's still not exactly certain. This uh, Gath is often put further down here. But where, whichever, it was closer to Timnah in either case. Ekron was closer. Ashdod was closer. Ashkelon was further away. But that's where he went. So why does he go to Ashkelon? Well, I think there are probably a couple of reasons why he went. First of all, probably no one in Ashkelon had ever heard of Samson. No one knew this guy, so nobody was on the lookout for him. Nobody would recognize him. And secondly, his first thought was probably that he would get the clothing and they wouldn't know how he got the clothing. The word wouldn't get back how he got the clothing. I think a little later, he wasn't too concerned about that. But at that moment, that may have been in his mind. So he goes 30, 25, 30 miles down the road to the city of Ashkelon. And in or near Ashkelon, we're told in the passage that we read that he killed 30 Philistines and took their clothes in order to pay off the debt. 
Now, a lot of things, of course, fly through your mind as you think of this. Guy going down here and knocking off 30 guys and taking their clothing to pay off a debt. How does all of this happen? You know, what, what's the context? What are the events involved here? First of all, we have to understand, he didn't just walk down the road and start knocking off Philistines as he passed them. Uh, because probably mostly what he would pass would be poor Philistines, and poor Philistines wouldn't have what he needed. He needed festal clothing. He needed fine linen. He needed the quality of clothing that would only be found on a rather wealthy Philistine. So he had to find rather well-to-do Philistines to knock off in order to uh, get the clothing that he needed. So how long does this take? Well, we aren't told how long it takes. It probably takes him several days to do this. First of all, it's a, it's a good day's journey from Timnah down to Ashkelon walking, or you know, that's probably how he got there. And, and then to, to set an ambush and to start picking on guys and scouting out the land and finding where the rich guys were and knocking them off. Now, how does he do this? We're not told. The scripture is totally silent about how he did this. Now, did he wait till somebody walked by and jump out of the bushes and grab the guy by the neck and throttle him? You know, or what, what did he do? Uh, that would be the cleanest way, of course, to do it, less likely to mess up the clothes. If he used a sword or something like that, why, of course, you're going to have a little bit of tearing of the garments and probably some blood on the clothing. These are sort of the details that obviously as God is concerned in terms of understanding what he's doing aren't terribly important, but they're kind of interesting to us, at least to me, as how he might have done that. And if, if he did kill a Philistine and the guy did bleed on the clothes, <laughs> what did he do, you know? Did he, did he take the clothes and wash them so the blood would be washed out, or, or what? Well, we, of course, don't know the answers to any of those questions. We can only speculate how he did it. You know, did God provide a place where all 30 were together at one meeting, you know, having a party someplace, or did he tack them one at a time? We don't know. Maybe he did not want to make any attempt to hide what he had done. It could be that he brought the clothes, bloody and all, and gave them to the guys and said, here, here's your clothes. Here's my answer. <laughs> this is my payment of the wager right here. Uh, by the way, you may want to wash them. <laughs> you might want to sew up those little sword holes there. <laughs> if that's what he did, why, why wouldn't he do that? He, he would do that so that they would understand that he did not appreciate their underhandedness. The way they came to the answer of the riddle was not cricket. And it could be that it was a warning. You know, there are 30 of you guys. I killed 30 guys to get these clothes. Here, here you are. A little blood on there shows that uh, this is true. Be warned. Be warned. Don't cross me again. Or you may be in trouble also. I think they were made aware that it was nothing to him to kill 30 men by himself. Well, we're told in the passage that his anger burned. He was steamed at his wife and at all the people of Timnah, at least those that were at the wedding. And so Samson went home. <laughs> he, he went back over the border from Timnah back over here to Zorah in the hill country and just left the whole situation there. I mean, he left at the very end of the wedding celebration and did not even complete that to go and get the uh, clothing. So what happens? When Samson delays his return, does not come back to consummate the marriage, the marriage was usually consummated at the very end of the seven-day celebration. He had not done that. And so the parents decided to annul the marriage. 
Samson has left. He didn't consummate the marriage. He's angry. He wrathfully paid off his wager. He stomped on out of here. He's probably never going to be back. So they made the breach irreparable by giving Samson's wife to what in the scripture it says to his friend. The meaning is the best man. The best man at the wedding was given the wife the, that Samson's wife was given to her, to, to him. And he was undoubtedly a Philistine, which of course probably made her happier too. I mean, she's marrying one of her own people. Well, this turn of events would be directly for the purpose of furthering God's plan of bringing judgment upon the vile Philistines. Well, let's look further here at this story in the 15th chapter. But after a while, in the time of the wheat harvest, it came about that Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, I will go into my wife in her room. But her father did not let him enter. And her father said, I really thought that you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. Samson then said to them, This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. And Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and turned the foxes tail to tail and put one torch in the middle between two tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain, along with the vineyards and the groves. Then the Philistines said, Who did this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Then, and Samson said to them, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I will quit. Then he struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter, and he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock at Edom. The wedding is faded into the history here. Several months have passed. Samson's been stomping up and down the countryside, you know, just trying to wear off the, his anger. It finally cooled down, and he decides he's going to restore his relationship with the Philistine wife that he had. He considered her to be his wife because they had gone through all of the wedding ceremony and everything had been done and negotiated except for the one final act of consummation of the relationship. For weeks, of course, he had seen nothing but red. was angry with his wife because she had betrayed him. She had said to him, you don't love me if you don't tell me. And then she turns around and betrays him. And he considered that, of course, to be a profound act de demonstrating no love. But as time passed, the picture came back into his mind about how good she looked to him. Remember how good she looked to him. And so he decides to take a young goat, which was a traditional gift for restoring a relationship or developing a relationship. He took a young goat as a gift and went down to Timnah in order to take his wife and consummate the marriage. Well, when he arrived at the scene, well, obviously she was still living in her father's house. And apparently the new son-in-law had moved into the father's house there. And the father of the girl would not let him see his wife. You, you'll notice what it says there. It says in the first verse, I will go into my wife in her room. The implication is, of course, the purpose was to go in and to complete the marriage. But the father would not, and he said, because I've given her to your best man. Well, talk about throwing gasoline on a fire. 
He tried to explain to Samson that because you were so angry and because you left, we thought you hated her. Therefore, we decided that you weren't going to consummate this, that the marriage would be annulled and we'd give her to your best man because we were humiliated by this whole thing. And she was humiliated by this whole thing. And the only thing to restore our honor is to have her be married and marry her to the best man. Well, Samson, of course, doesn't buy much of that. It doesn't make him, it does not appease him. But you'll notice what he tries to do further. He says, but Samson, have I got a deal for you? <laughs> I have a younger daughter over here and she's not married. And look at her. She is even more beautiful than the one you married. He knew Samson. <laughs> he knew that Samson was drawn to the physical beauty of his older daughter. And so now he's playing up the younger daughter as being even more beautiful than the first or the elder daughter. Samson does not take the bait. We have to give Samson a little bit of credit here. Now he, he's drawn by his eyes and he chases after beautiful women, but at this point, something else is going on in his mind that even supersedes his natural lust. Well, what happens in Samson is he views what happens here as characteristic of the pagan Philistines as characteristic of their attitude towards Israel. They had a superiority complex. They looked down their noses at Israel. After all, they were the ruling power. They, their their uh, territory here along the coast here, and, and they had developed a hegemony over this whole region in here of Judah, probably Benjamin as well as Dan. All of that region was under their thumb. And so, you know, they were kind of looking down upon the Israelites. And so he took this not only as a personal affront but he took it as an insult on his people. Now, God did not lead Samson to marry this Philistine woman. But God is using the events here to fulfill his plan. He's using this, these events to prepare Samson to do what he wants Samson to do in bringing vengeance and judgment upon the Philistines. What we discover here is that Samson warns his ex-wife's parents, that because of their action, he says to them in verse 3, this time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do harm to them. When I do harm to them. In other words, he's directly threatening to do bodily harm and, you know, property harm to, to the Philistines. He probably hasn't thought out the plan yet, but he's going to do something to express his anger against the Philistines. He knew, of course, that in the case of the riddle, he had made a big mistake. He had told his wife. Therefore, it was his fault that the riddle was solved. But this time, he has no fault in the matter. She was his legitimate wife in his eyes. They had no right to give her away to this Philistine guy who was supposedly his best man. And so Samson is going to get his revenge. In the Song of Moses, which is recorded in the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, we read the words, God said, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. But in this particular case, God will use Samson's desire to strike back at the Philistines in order to achieve his vengeance on the Philistines. You know, there's, there isn't any way that you and I can second-guess God God is capable at the, you know, in a split second to wipe out an entire nation if he so chooses. But God did not choose to do that. He chose to use a man by the name of Samson with all of his faults 
to bring vengeance upon these people. Well, Samson was probably walking out of Timnah when he spotted a pack of animals and thought, I know what I will do. Now, I realize that it's translated in this particular passage as 300 foxes. But the Hebrew word, which is translated foxes, also equally means jackals. And the chances of this being jackals rather than foxes are very great because foxes usually travel singly or in pairs, whereas jackals travel in packs. It's not impossible, of course, for Samson to have traveled around rounding up foxes here and there, 300 of them. (laughs) But to have trapped a whole pack of jackals would have been a lot easier uh, for him to do. Whatever the case was, he captured 300 jackals. Now again, think about the ramifications of how do you go about trapping 300 wild animals with your, wild, with your hands, apparently. You know? How do you do this? You run each one down and you grab the thing by the neck and, and then what do you do with it? Tiberius Caesar, when he inherited the throne from his stepfather, Augustus, said these words, to hold the imperial throne of Rome is like holding a wolf by the ears. To me, that's such a graphic image. Holding a wolf by the ears. I mean, if you're holding a wolf by the ears, (laughs) you're in a pickle. (laughs) Because you're not going to be able to hold on that wolf forever, and you don't dare let him go. And this, this seems to be a, a, a situation here. I mean, how do you, how, what do you do with all these snarling animals once you've captured? How do you keep them corralled while you're getting 300 of them? Well, the details, of course, are not given. God gave him special wisdom and special strength, we have to understand, but he obviously couldn't keep 300 of them under his arms here, you know, like this. So he had to somehow corral these animals uh, until he was able to carry out his purpose. Now, I think probably many of us might be a little disturbed about what he did here, Uh, not so much by burning the wheat as by what he did to the poor animals. And, of course, obviously, uh, animal rights activists (laughs) probably view this particular passage with a great deal of alarm here. He ties the animals together in pairs, tail to tail. Now, personally, I don't believe that he actually knotted their tails. That would even for Samson, would be a little difficult and be rather painful for the animals, I'm sure. I think he used some material to tie their tails together. And then, within the midst of the knot, he shoved flammable material that would become a torch. And so, here he is. He's, I mean, think of it. He has to tie 150 knots. And what are you doing with the two you've got knotted together to start with while you're knotting others? He had to do this inside of something, you know, a pen, a a house, or somewhere to keep all these animals together. It must have been a din. Imagine the howling that was going on here while he was uh, getting all these animals ready. And then what did he do? How did he release them? You know, he he lit the torch in their tail and, and turned the animals loose. Maybe just took them outside the pen and let them go whatever way they would run. Certainly they ran helter skelter. I've never seen this happen. I don't know what it'd be like with two animals tail, tied tail to tail. Which way were they going to run? You know, uh, this way or that way or this way or that way or how are they going to run? Are they going to run in tandem or are they going to run against each other? Or whatever it was, they just went chaotically uh, through the landscape. But this is what he wanted because they took this burning torch that was in their ta- between their tails out through the fields and, of course, lit the fields on fire. Now, on the surface, it, of course, 
seems a rather cruel act to perpetrate on the animals, foxes, jackals, whatever they are, uh, a rather cruel act. But I think we have to understand, and this is why I believe, that he tied the tails together with some kind of cloth. As the torch burned down, it would burn the cloth, and the knot would break, and of course the animals would be freed. They might have slightly singed tails, but I think they got free, and I don't think they were ultimately suffered any particular harm, unless, of course, there's some kind of psychological damage done <laughs> by, by this activity happening uh, in, in their lives. Think what they'll have to tell their, their kids, you know, their, their cubs, their pups, uh, a little later on. But the damage done to the Philistines was rather great. It wasn't like somebody just starting a fire in one corner here and one corner there. I mean, it was like, you know, just all through the fields in very crooked lines, the, uh, the grain was set afire. The fire spread rapidly. The grain was at full head. It apparently was the time of the year. It, it, you know, the implication was that it was at harvest time. And so we're, we're lighting dry weed on fire here, and it's going to blaze very quickly and very hotly. And the fire spread, we're told, beyond the wheat fields, into the vineyards, and into the orchards. Now, of course, at that time of the year, wheat harvest, it's roughly May in, into June, the vineyards are, are just coming on with their fruit, and the orchards are coming on with their fruit. And so the trees are green, the, everything is green, the leaves are green, the, the fruit is green. So I, I don't think like we can see blazing trees in the orchard here. I don't think that's what happened. I think the fire spread to the brush and to the grass that may have been growing within the orchard, and probably the fire singed the fruit and, and damaged the fruit. I don't think any was However, what do the Philistines do? Do they get together a posse and say, okay, let's go find Samson and string him up? No. It's very, very strange what they do here. In verse 6, the Philistines said, who did this? And they, probably meaning other Philistines, said, Samson, notice, the son-in-law of the Timnite. <laughs> They're connecting him by marriage to this girl's father. In other words, this was a legitimate wedding. He's the son-in-law. Because he, meaning the father, Samson's father-in-law, took his wife and gave her to his companion. And so what do the Philistines do? They came up and burned her and her father with fire. I'm sure the father, at that point, decided that probably wasn't a good idea to have given his daughter to the best man. The Philistines turned on Samson's, now obviously, ex-wife, because she was married to another man, and on his ex-father-in-law and family. She and the father-in-law were a convenient target. Samson was not a convenient target. They didn't know where Samson was, and they were afraid of Samson. And so they took out their vengeance upon these people. And these people can only be considered as, you know, they are in a way responsible. But Samson is the direct cause of the destruction. Fire. Fire had been used to destroy the crops. And so the Philistines used fire to exact revenge. Now, when, when we read about that, I think it takes us back to uh, verse 15 where, of the previous chapter, where the 30 men came to Samson's wife, and they said, Entice your husband that he may tell us this riddle, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. 
I mean, they had threatened to do it way back then, which of course was a few months before. And now they're actually carrying it out. They're, they're doing this thing. Maybe this was their way of, of dealing with people, you know, burning people with fire, but it certainly was in this particular case. So they went to the father-in-law's house. They, they probably nailed all the windows and the door shut so that, and put the whole family in there and then just torched the house, burned the house down over their heads. Well, news reached Samson, and Samson was very disturbed by this. Samson, of course, felt anger towards his father-in-law. He had had great anger towards his wife for betrayal, but to him this was a barbarous act. And he was the one who had torched the fields. Why should they take their revenge on this family? Now, the scripture is very quiet in terms of the details here. Let me go back to verse 7 of chapter 15. And Samson said to them, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you. But after that, I will quit. Well, he will quit for a while. And he struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter. And he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Etam. We're not given any details as to what he did here. It doesn't say that, you know, he went into town and, and took his AK-47 and just leveled them all. You know, it doesn't, doesn't tell us exactly what he did here. But the scripture says that he, he smote them, and the translation here is ruthlessly, the Hebrew phrase is leg upon thigh. Leg upon thigh is a Hebrew euphemism for mercilessly. Dealing with the enemy with no quarter allowed. Just destroy him. The only result being total destruction. No mercy. Scripture says he did not cease the slaughter until he had satisfied his revenge. How many men did it take to satisfy his revenge? I think we always have to view Samson here as a man who takes revenge on men. I don't think he takes any revenge on women. Oh, yes, in the final destruction of the house of Dagon, many of the lords and ladies would die. But during the course of his life, it was men he took out his revenge on, men of warrior age. And how many does he kill here? We don't know. There's no number given. But once he had satisfied his desire, he left town. And he didn't go home. The scripture says he went to a cave near Etam, and there he hid. Where is this cave? Where is the cave of Etam? Well, actually, nobody knows for sure. We're here. At, he was at Timnah, where he probably did the slaughtering of the men. He probably got quite a few of the 30 to whom he had to give clothing. I don't know if he, he probably didn't bother taking the clothing back. And then he went back across the border. Uh, did he go home first? We don't know, but he went to Etam. So where is Etam? Well, there are two strong possibilities of Etam. One is that it was south of Zorak, down in the hill country here, adjacent to the Shephelah, which is the valley and hill region along here. Another is that it was up here right about there. But I have to say that myself, for what the scripture says, I believe it has to be the one down here. And the reason is because it says in the scripture here that he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock at Edom. As I mentioned to you before, the scripture uses down and up in reference to altitude. It doesn't use down and up reference to 
a north-south oriented map as we do. We say we go up to Oregon, we go down to Los Angeles. What do we mean by that? Well, it's because the way the map looks to us. If we were to always draw our map the other way around, then of course we'd have to reverse everything. And so if Edom was up here, he had to go up to Edom because Bethlehem's in the hill country, up near the top of the ridge. He'd had to go uphill. And it says he went down. So he probably went down this way, lower in elevation to the cave at Edom. And it kind of fits in anyway with the description of what comes in the next passage. Let me read uh, beginning at verse 9. Then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out at Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, Have you come down to bind? Uh, we have come down to bind you, so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me. So they said to him, No, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands. Yet surely we will not kill you. Then they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. This is a very interesting passage because here we have his own countrymen. His own countrymen are willing to betray him. His own countrymen are so afraid of the Philistines that they will turn over this champion to the Philistines rather than face the retribution of the Philistines. Did they say, Samson, you're such a great man. Why don't you lead us and we'll defeat the Philistines? No, they don't say that. They say, Samson, what have you done to us? You, you have brought this retribution on us. And so Samson, you know, he's very, he's accommodating to his people. And, and he says, okay, well, why don't you just bind me? I promise you won't do me any harm. Bind me and turn me over to the Philistines. Okay, we'll do that. And they bind him with new, two new ropes. Why do they bother binding him with two new ropes? Ah, the story of his strength was already... Uh, getting around, and they knew this was a dangerous man. I think we find it also interesting that when, when they went down to, to meet with Samson, there, was three, there were 3,000 of them. 3,000 guys went down to find Samson. 3,000. Probably like, what is this mob doing here, you know? Well, this passage that we just read and the, the next passage, which uh, finishes off the chapter, all kind of goes together as one, so I'll I'll, I'd like to do it as a single story next week, so I think we'll stop at that point.